0: Okay, so we're looking at session number 7, which is the battle for our minds, and if you're following it in the manual, it's page 55. Although I think just 55 gives a brief intro, and 56 is where we'll start. So the battle is real. As we've explained, as well as being up against the world, as well as being up against the flesh, we have this enemy, the devil. But the good news is that Jesus came for the very purpose of destroying the works of the devil, uh, 1 John 3 verse 8. The Western worldview, we are talking about um, worldviews, weren't we, earlier in the course, as we still said, tends to dismiss the spiritual aspect of life, um, or at least regard it as redundant. But there is a constant theme through the pages of the Bible that there is this battle. It's between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. It's between the spirit of truth and the father of lies, which um, is one of the descriptions Jesus uses for Satan. It's between Christ and the antichrist. It's between good and evil. It's there. It's the biblical view. And as Christians, of course, we're not immune to this battle. And if we thought we were, then we're like um, you know an ostrich with our head in the sand. And of course, it leaves a big target uh, for uh, A bullseye, shall we say, for for the enemy to target. Um, We're in the battle, whether we like it or not, whether we feel like it or not. We talk about the armour of God, Ephesians 6, and of course the armour of God is for Christians, it's not for unbelievers, it's for us as Christians, because we need it. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, verse 10, in fact, that we're not fighting flesh and blood, in other words, we're not fighting against people, even though sometimes the things that people say can hurt us, you know, and feel like the the attack. No, we're fighting against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. That's the explicit battle we're up against, Ephesians 6.10 as I say. So if we don't understand that we're in a battle or how it works, what will probably happen to us as Christians is we become a casualty and we become neutralised, if you like, in our walk with the Lord. So a little bit about Satan we've got here. There was a time, of course, when Adam and Eve, having been made in the image of God, ruled the world. Adam and Eve were given that responsibility to rule and reign over all of that creation. So that's why, therefore, I guess, the devil was seen originally as a snake. He had to crawl. He had to be submissive to Adam and Eve because they ruled the world. But what happened when Adam and Eve sinned was they handed, in effect, the right to rule the world over to Satan. Which is why now Jesus refers to the devil as the prince, or if you like, the ruler of the world, in John twelve thirty one. He's also called the ruler of the kingdom of the air in Ephesians two two, and we're told that the whole world lies in his, Satan's power, in one John five nineteen. But Satan is not like God. Again, we could often be fooled into thinking that they're is the supernatural and the natural. And that's how to divvy up everything that's real. But the Bible says, no, you divide reality between the creator and the created, John 1.3. And like us, Satan is a created being, Mm. whereas God is the creator. So they're not equal opposite powers or anything remotely like it, though Satan would like you to believe that. They were. In fact, to compare Satan to God is like comparing an ant to an atom bomb. I mean, you just can't. There's just no comparison. The second thing we need to understand about Satan is he can only be in one place at one time. Because he's a created being like you and me. So it's very unlikely that in our lifetime we'll ever meet face-to-face in the spiritual atmosphere around us, Satan himself. Because he's not omnipresent. But he does, of course, have a whole hierarchy of evil spirits, fallen angels, powers and authorities that are in his domain and he uses them to influence us if he can. Number three, we need to learn that Satan's power and authority do not even begin to compare with God's power and authority. At the cross, what we're told in Colossians 2:15 is that Jesus completely disarmed Satan. And that now Christ, Jesus, is seated at the right hand of the Father. The place of ultimate power and authority over the entire cosmos and universe. He's actually described as being seated far above, not just a little bit above, but far above all other powers, all other authorities. That is where Christ is. In fact, Satan is completely under God's control. Jude 1 verse 6. And he can only operate within the boundaries that God sets and determines. The fourth thing we need to learn about Satan is he doesn't know everything. He's not that clever. Occult practices, all of them probably try and predict what's going on in people's minds or try and predict the future. But the fact is, the demons and the devil don't know either of those things very well at all. It's because, again, the devil is created like we are. (coughs) And so he's not like God, and therefore he cannot read your mind. He cannot look into your thought life. Which is why, when you read through the Bible, any interaction between humans and demons, and for that matter also, any interaction between humans and angels, is always done out loud. It's always vocalised. It's got a volume. Uh, Here's an example. In Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar at the time had this disturbing dream. And as he normally did, he consulted his sorcerers, his Chaldean sorcerer, to try and interpret it. But rather than telling them the dream and asking them for the interpretation, he said, you, you must also tell me what was in my dream. I'm not going to tell you. And then tell me what it meant. And they couldn't do it. Why couldn't they do it? Because their demons, they consulted, can't do that. They can't look into your mind. They can't see what you're dreaming. They can't understand what's going on in your thoughts. Now, similarly... It's interesting, you never hear of a psychic winning the lottery. You don't, do you? They don't know the future. They don't know what's going to happen. (laughs) Satan, though, can put thoughts into your mind. He's observed, as I said before, how you've behaved over the years and he can often make a pretty good guess at what you're thinking by the way you're behaving and what you're saying. He knows what's on your mind by proxy, by guesswork. But sometimes he gets it about right from that evidence. And sometimes he, he can guess what you're thinking because he may have given you the thought in the first place. And if he sees evidence you responded to it, he can... yeah, he's got it. So how does Satan work? Well, firstly, to point out that Satan works through this organised network of fallen angels. Um, Ephesians 6 verse 12 describes it like this, rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. All different types and levels, if you like, of evil spirit. The Bible doesn't really tell us much more about how all that works, how the hierarchy works, what the types are, what the varieties are all about. And I guess it's because we don't need to know. So let's just leave it at that. If, If we needed to know, I'm sure God would have told us. The second thing we need to work, understand about how he works is, as I said before, he puts thoughts into our minds. In 1 Timothy 4 it says, The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So they can obviously put thoughts into people's minds and influence them that way. So how does that work? Well, we've got through a, a few biblical examples here. I think they're in your booklets. Uh, firstly, from 1 Chronicles 21. It says that Satan rose up against Israel, the nation of Israel, and incited David, that's King David, over Israel, to take a census of Israel. Now, what's wrong, you might ask, with knowing how big an army you've got, how many fighting men are in your kingdom? Well, even the captain of the guard at the time, a guy called Joab, worked it out. He said, this is a problem. Why do you want to do this, my lord, he said to the king. Why should you bring guilt on Israel? What was wrong was that this was a temptation that the devil had planted, that David had fallen for, to put his confidence in his own resources, not to put his trust in God, which he should have done. And David fell for this temptation because he was deceived into thinking it was his idea. But the word of God clearly says it was Satan that rose up and incited David to have this thought. See, that's how it works. In John thirteen, another example. This is at the, the the Last Supper, if you like, before Jesus was arrested. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot. Uh, Judas, a name synonymous, infamous with betrayal, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Now, what happened here? The thought came to Judas from the devil. The Bible's told us this. The devil prompted Judas Iscariot to have this plan and act it out, and he fell for it. And, of course, what we find is when Judas realised what he'd done, he was mortified uh, at the consequences of his actions and went and hanged himself. Uh, Another example, this is in in the church age, Acts chapter 5. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? See, again, Ananias probably thought it was his idea. Oh, yeah, I'll pretend I'm giving all the money from this land to the kind of church and the apostles and for God's purposes. But actually, I'm going to keep some for myself and not tell anyone about it. It's a lie. But it came, the Bible says quite clearly, from Satan, giving him that thought in his heart. And it had terrible consequences. If you don't know the story, look it up. Um, But God certainly sent a very powerful message to the early church and to the church forever, really, that he doesn't want the devil. Uh, to get us to compromise the truth, and to have a measure of control over us. Satan puts thoughts in our minds. Okay, that's the theme there. It's not hard to imagine, therefore, that at times he can make those thoughts feel like there are thoughts. So we might say, I feel useless, I can't do it, I'm ugly, I'm a nobody. But actually, the original thought was from him. You're nobody, you're useless, you're ugly. And we articulate that as our own thought. That's how it works. Uh, another way that Satan uh, influences us, uh, or works, is through temptation, accusation, and deception. These are the three strategies that he regularly employs on us. Imagine, if you like, your Christian life as a race. Probably more like a marathon, like you know, Mo Farah through London back in April. Is that where he fell over? Or he came ninth. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He, he was running the marathon. And um, what it's like, if your, your life is like that, your Christian life is like that, what Satan can't do is come along and rugby tackle you to the floor so you can't complete the race. He doesn't come along and build a wall in front of the, kind of, um, you know, the, the on the road to prevent you from running the race. He can't do that. But what he can do is incite the voices from the crowd all along the journey of the 26 miles with things like this. Some of them might entice you. Hey, look what's over here. Come this way. Look, come and get this. It'll make you feel better. You'll do better. By coming this way, some will shout accusations: "You're a failure. You're useless. You're a useless Christian. You can't do it. You may as well sit down and give up." Some will, I'll uh, just tell you, you know, faced lies, really, to deceive you. Um, Excuse me, the race isn't that way. It's actually this way. You come down this way. It's better. Come this way. That's not the right way. The, the finishing line is just round the corner, over here. And Satan is trying to get us to into sin. Or into these negative thought patterns. Oh, I'm no good, I'll never be able to do this. He's trying to deceive us in the ways that we think. I can sort it out on my own, I can do the what I want here. And what happens in this race is defeated Christians believe these lies, they sit down and that's the end of their race. Stagnant Christians argue with the thoughts but don't make no real progress. But victorious Christians, they don't pay attention to those voices. And actually the more they run on, the more the voices disappear in the background. They take every thought captive, as we've been talking about. They make it obedient to Christ. They keep running towards the line and they finish the race. So the question is, well, are we, am I experiencing this battle for the mind? Well, we could ask ourselves, I guess, three simple questions to kind of work it out. The first one would be, put your hand up if you've experienced some form of temptation over the last (coughs) week could be to flirt could be to look at this look at that eat too much become jealous become angry whatever it might be that might be most hands put your hand up again if you've struggled with accusation this week i'm no good i won't ever do anything i'm not really loved by god maybe one or two of us will put our hands up to that but have you ever been have you been deceived in this last week maybe you wouldn't know that Absolutely, yeah, that's which that's is that's why that's none that's of us that's put that's our that's hands that's up. That's You've worked out my little kind of game there. That's, <laughs> <trick-or-treat>. <laughs> so that's right, you're feeling a bit nervous. I don't know, I don't know. I wouldn't <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah. Good point, you got it. Um, number four here, Get uh, by getting footholds in our lives through sin. That's another way in which Satan works. Uh, for example, Ephesians 4 tells us if we don't deal with anger quickly, you give the devil a foothold in your life. And the word there... Topos, I'm not a Greek scholar, but that might be how it's pronounced, means a place. You give a place in your life, uh, if it's not dealt with properly, for the devil. Um, Paul said, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. So he was saying, look, I've forgiven whoever has sinned against somebody else, um, in order that Satan might not outwit us, so that we're not unaware of his schemes. And one of the greatest access points uh, for Satan gaining a foothold in our life is through the sin of unforgiveness, which is, I know, a theme we've already looked at. Because, you see, if Satan can get us into a sin, he can gain a point of influence in our lives. You know, sometimes we imagine that the demonic is something very dramatic. But actually, more often than not, it's primarily a battle for the mind. And it's not so demonstrative, maybe, as we make it out to be. He wants us to be led into immorality. He wants us to be led into division and conflict. He wants us to hit out at ourselves and at other people. He wants us to forget who our real enemy is. And he is our real enemy. Uh, just a little section here, top of page 59, about our relationship as Christians um, with demons and the demonic. Just a just provide complete assurance for you. As Christians, we cannot be uh, possessed by a demon. We cannot be controlled completely by a demon. That is impossible, because at the centre of your being, through the you know the uh, the spirit of life that's come into you, your spirit is connected to God's spirit, and that's that's a done deal. That is there. Satan can't have you back. He can never own you again because Christ has bought you and purchased you and you're his because of the blood of Jesus. So that's, that's a done deal. You can't be possessed. You can't be taken back. You can't be owned again. Whatever you do, whatever you might think by Satan. But if we fall for, say, the temptations, accusations and the uh, um, deceptions of Satan, what he can do is gain a degree of influence in our lives. And in our minds. Uh, Just for example, when when we hear about what Satan does to unbelievers in 2 Corinthians 4, it says that Satan has blinded their minds, completely blinded them to the truth. And I think in some similar way, even for us as believers, he can blind sections of us and our mind to the truth. And we find it difficult to see or connect with the truth in a meaningful way. Now, of course, the good news of this while we're here is we believe that footholds like that can be overcome in Christ. And again, we're going to cover that in the Steps to Freedom on that 8th of June afternoon. Uh, the last section here really is looking at our defence. Um, and just by way of introduction, uh, a little story here, a bit of history. I'm not a massive historian, but the, the older I get, the more interesting I am in history. Maybe it's because I've got more of it my own. Um, but anyway, uh, the Charge of the Light Brigade I heard a little bit about. I, I heard that phrase, the Charge of the Light Brigade. Yeah, famous British um, disaster in battle. It's important that us British talk about our disasters, because we have many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, yeah, well, and I discovered what the Charge of the Light Brigade was all about. And actually, it's relative. It kind of connects with a bit of um, geography that's going on at the moment. So, 25th of October 1855, the British, the French and the Turkish allies were fighting against the Russians in Crimea. And the British Light Cavalry Brigade were ordered into the Battle of Balaclava. I thought Balaclava was what you wanted. Anyway, when you're robbing a bank. But anyway. Um, Now, why were they called the Light Brigade? They were called the Light Brigade, I learned, because they had very little armour. And the the purpose of that was to enable them to move very quickly and swiftly on horseback. Um, So they could overtake a retreating enemy and cut them down with a sword, you know, back in the the day. Um, So they didn't need heavy stuff because they needed to be quick. Uh, Now as opposed to, I guess, the heavy heavy cavalry which you did have, which were the guys on the horses with all this massive, hard equipment for the heat of hand-to-hand battle and combat. Now what had happened is um, this light cavalry brigade chasing the enemy in retreat had to come up through this narrow valley. And actually the enemy, I don't know whether it was planned or whether they kind of just happened, but the enemy ended up looking down from, from on them from every side of this narrow valley. And they had guns. And within 20 minutes, that's all it took, uh, almost half of the horsemen and... Two-thirds of their horses, out of 670, I think, um, that the was the, 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 the army, had been killed or wounded or captured. Um, the whole, I guess, moral of the story and its relevance for us today is they just weren't equipped for that right battle. They were wearing the wrong stuff for the wrong battle. And I guess the lesson for us is that God has provided us with the right armour and the right equipment, and it's adequate and it's sufficient and we can use it and it will work, but we need to put it on. We need to be uh, mindful of it and use it well, not be caught out with the wrong equipment. Uh oops, a too quick oh, that's it. So the first um, part of our defense is this: understand our position in Christ. We've already mentioned it, but Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan, and he also defeated and disarmed satan at the cross these are all relevant bible verses attached to them and as a result all authority not just some of it not just part of it but all authority on earth as well as in heaven was given to christ because of that victory ultimate victory now in Ephesians 1 19 to 22 it also tells us that as a result of this jesus is now seated at the right hand of god in that ultimate seat of power and authority. So we've already mentioned this, I think, in the previous session tonight. Far above, not just a little bit above, far above all power and authority and dominion. And all things have been placed under the feet of Jesus. And now Jesus is the head over absolutely everything. That is a spiritual reality right now. But Ephesians 2.6 tells us something else about this reality. Uh, it relates to us. It says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is the verse that, for me, over this tonight, It's just the one that struck me the most powerfully. That God has raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in that position of ultimate Authority and power in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus oh I thought I was down on earth well we are down on earth but in the spirit realm that's where we are that is our position in Christ and we need to understand that and that will help us in our defence we're seated with him above all the demonic powers therefore we have authority over the kingdom of darkness because of our position in Christ not for any other reason Not because we feel like we've been learning Christianity well, we've done well over the last week, the last few years, whatever it is. However long we've been a Christian, we are there in that position. And we're told, Ephesians 6.10, that we have access to God's mighty power. It says at the end there of Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty power. Why does Paul tell us to be, and finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power? Because we can be strong. Because we can have his mighty power at work in our lives. He's not leading us up the garden path here. He's not telling us to aim for something that's out of our reach. We have God's mighty power as long as we're filled by the Holy Spirit. Now, number two, as part of our defence... That's part of our armoury. We have resources in Christ. Satan is defeated, but we're told that he still prowls around. Now, it's a lovely language, isn't it? In some ways, very graphic. Like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. That's, he's still going around, he's still having influence, because there's kind of an in-between time between uh, Satan's defeat and his ultimate destruction. As Jesus is waiting patiently for all those that he's rescued to come to faith. But we have been given resources to withstand him. And Paul describes it this way like the armour of God. Uh, I guess he was picturing, because he was often ch- he was chained at the time to Roman guards, he was under house arrest. He used the kind of imagery of a Roman soldier, a centurion in his armoury. As, a, as an illustration of our reality in Christ. Being clothed with armour from God. Able to stand firm. And just to pull out three of the bits of equipment he refers to. But there is a list of six there. I will encourage you if you want to read any section of scripture go to Ephesians 6. It's just so encouraging. Three of them are the belt of truth. And the belt of truth stands against the devil's deception. He also tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness... Which helps us take our stand against Satan's accusations. Because our chest, our whole kind of vital organs, the place and the seat of our emotions has this protection of righteousness against Satan's accusations. (coughs) And another one, we're told to take up and put up the shield of faith. Why do we do that? Well, it enables us to take our stand against Satan's assault on our minds. And that's where the battle takes place. And we're told that with the shield of faith, we can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Imagine one of these graphic battle scenes in, you know, a Lord of the Rings kind of epic movie like that. And you see those massive armies just about to come to, to blows. But before that, you see this whole array like rain of... Arrows flung from the archers across everyone's head, just indiscriminately seeing who they can take out. That is the kind of description here of what the Satan does. He's just assaulting our minds, just flinging these arrows, hoping that one of them or other will stick to as many (laughs) of us as possible. But we have the shield of faith to hold up, and we're told it can extinguish every single one of these flaming arrows. Not just some of them, not just the odd one, not just if you're lucky, but it can extinguish them all. And the encouragement of course is that, just like a Roman soldier, there's never a time that you're without your armour. You You're to always have it on, always to have things at the ready. There's no safe place to take it off. There's no time in life that we can do without it. Uh, Another key Bible verse for us here, as we look at this last section is James chapter 4 7 it says submit yourselves to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you so as long as you're submitting to God and you're as you're resisting a devil the devil has no choice he has to flee it doesn't matter how weak you feel it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian that's the authority you have over Uh, the devil and his demons he has to go if you submit to God and resist the devil in Christ if you like we've been restored to that place that we described earlier where Adam and Eve were before the fall when Satan had to be like a snake and just crawl in submission under their feet at their feet, had no legs Satan again is in that place, for a while he'd usurped the authority of mankind when they'd sinned But Jesus has won it back. He's won it back for us. And as much as we can understand that concept, we have an ability to escape from our cycle of sin, confess, sin, confess, etc. Those kind of cycles. But of course we need to do more than just confess. Confess is an important part of it. Yes, we've done wrong. We need to admit that and confess it. But we also need to resist the devil as a second element of it. And then he will flee from us. And in order to stay free, what we need to do is identify the lies that we've been believing that made us get into the sin in the first place. Mm. And then we can renew our minds with the truth and not have to fall for those lies again. The third thing we need to be uh, uh, active in, in terms of our defence, is not being frightened. The S- Satan wants you to be scared of him, he wants to be worshipped above God, but we have no reason to be fearful of the of Satan or his demons at all. The only thing big about a demon, I'm told is his mouth, like a dog with a bark but no teeth <laughs> you know not scary at all. In fact, demons are petrified of Christians who know the power and authority they have in their position in Christ. It's a bit like germs. I guess germs are invisible, they're potentially dangerous and they're everywhere. And there was a time in medical history where they didn't really understand and appreciate the extent to which germs could influence uh, people who were were ill. So they didn't really wash instruments or sterilise things or wash their hands, etc. And lo and behold, people died not because of their wounds or their illness, but because of the germs and the infections. But medical science caught up with that. And I guess it's similar for those who are Christians but don't appreciate the battle they're in. Or those Christians who appreciate they're in a battle, but don't actually actively put on the armour of God. It's like it's like then the, the germs are going to get us. In effect, you know, if if we're battling germs, then the thing to do is not to go everywhere thinking we the germs are everywhere and become a hypochondriac as a result. But the, the key is to just live a balanced, sensible life. You know, rest, exercise, and diet. Let the immune system do its job. And when it comes to the spiritual world, we shouldn't be going around looking for demons everywhere, around every corner, under every bush. We simply need to fix our eyes on Jesus, live a righteous life by faith, and in the power of his Holy Spirit. Our only safety, our only place of sanctuary is in Christ. That's the only place in him, and hallelujah for it. The other thing, just to note really, just by way of a side note, is that volume doesn't really count for anything when it comes to... To demons, We've already talked about the need to make things vocal, because they can only hear things that are vocalised. But we don't need to raise our voice. In fact, sometimes if we're shouting, it can show that actually we are fearful, and actually it can undermine our authority. Um, but and we shouldn't be operating in fear, we have no reason to do so. Uh, for, fourthly, in terms of defence, guard our minds. It says in 1 Peter 1, prepare your mind for action. And just a watch out, really, we need to be mindful not to be tempted into any of these um, philosophies or theories or religions that encourage people to uh, empty our minds or put our minds into neutral. Uh, There was a a number of Eastern religions, philosophies, etc. that are seeping into our culture and our day that encourage that kind of thinking. Maharishi Yogi in Hinduism, for example, says the mind is like a snake. You have to get it out of the way so that you can perceive truth directly baloney. wrong way around god doesn't bypass the mind we don't get rid of the mind we don't get rid of thoughts we don't empty our minds god uses them he works through them there's no such thing as mindless christianity so just be mindful of that and the last point here on page 61 is to turn on the light satan doesn't have any power over us we've looked at that unless of course we give him that power Uh, Unless we are fooled to be deceived into believing he does have some influence like that over us. We only give him that power when we fail to believe the truth. Therefore what we're to do is to expose Satan's lie to God's truth. And at that point the power of that lie is broken. His lies can't withstand truth any more than night could withstand uh, the rising sun of the dawn. It's a truth encounter, not a power encounter. And you get that theme throughout all of Scripture. Just look at some of these verses here. John 8, for example. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Later, John 14. I am the way, said Jesus. The truth and the life. And when Jesus is praying for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his own death, can you think of it? He's thinking of us then. John 17. He says, my prayer, Father, is not that you take them, talking about us, future disciples, don't take them out of the world, but that you, Father, would protect them from the evil one. Oh, how, how is Jesus going to pray that we're protected? He says it like this. Sanctify them, how? By your truth. Your word is truth. That's how he prayed for us. See, the whole emphasis on scripture is this truth available for us. And we need to know the truth and we need to know how to use it and then we need to use it. And that's all about putting on the armour of God as we do that. Of course, the first thing we put on is that very belt of truth. It's right there, just at the ready, with all the uh, tools in our belt, if you like, of God's truth available for us. So, the issue is not so much where did those thoughts come from, and they may have come from the TV, they may have come from our memory of past experiences, they may have come from the radio, it may have been deceiving spirits just giving us thoughts, but the key thing, wherever they've come from is, is that thought true or not? And if it's not true, then you need to decide, well, therefore, I am not going to believe it. That's where it happens. You have to choose the truth and keep choosing the truth, and then the lies will fade away. The volume will get dialed down. Easier not to think about. And in time, emotions and feelings will catch up with that reality. You can try just not thinking negative thoughts, but you'll find that it won't work. Trying not to think negatively is not a solution. If you're in a dark room, for example, you want to see, what you don't do is shoo the darkness away. Off you go. What you do is you turn the lights on, like we did earlier, so we could see. Um, Christians aren't called to dispel the darkness, but they're instructed to turn on the light. Just like, for example, bank cashiers, I'm told, aren't um, taught how to spot counterfeit notes by studying other forgeries, but they're actually trained to spot counterfeits by examining intensely the genuine article. So they know the real deal, then they're able to spot what's a forgery, what's a counterfeit, and it's the same with us. We need to acquaint ourselves intimately with the truth and then use it daily. We don't want to get obsessed about demons, Um, that's letting Satan set the agenda, but the right approach is to choose the truth and to fill our minds with that truth. Just to end with this uh, bit of scripture in Philippians 4, 6-8, Paul instructs us to do just that very eloquently. He says, finally, brothers, sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about it. So, um, you know, a bit of homework. i like to set you a bit of homework. You'll, you'll see even in these chapters, they give you a little section right at the very end, a little quick sentence. Well, for these two sessions, you'll see them on page 54, page 62. You might want to just earmark them. The homework they encourage you to do is to meditate. And they've given you a list of scriptures to meditate on. There is a Christian form of meditation. It isn't about emptying your mind or kind of taking your mind out of yourself and perceiving truth correctly. It's filling your mind with truth. So meditation is just kind of reading it, letting it go in, soaking it, think it, dwell on it, just imagine it, smell it, taste it. Whatever you do, just kind of mull over it and suck it dry for all it's worth. So I encourage you to look at those particular verses. All right, thank you so much we're ahead of schedule so there you go got an early night